Section 2 of the Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides with Samuel Johnson by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Monday, 16 August. Dr. William Robertson came to breakfast. We talked of Ogden on prayer. Dr. Johnson said, The same argument which are used against God's hearing prayer will serve against his rewarding good and punishing evil. He has resolved. He has declared in the former case as in the latter. He had last night looked into Lord Hale's remarks on the history of Scotland. Dr. Robertson and I said it was a pity Lord Hales did not write greater things. His lordship had not then published his Annals of Scotland. Johnson. I remember I was once on a visit at the house of a lady for whom I had a high respect. There was a good deal of company in the room. When they were gone, I said to this lady, What foolish talking have we had? Yes, said she, but while they talked, you said nothing. I was struck with the reproof. How much better is the man who does anything that is innocent than he who does nothing? Besides, I love anecdotes. I fancy mankind may come in time to write all aphoristically except in narrative, grow weary of preparation and connection and illustration and all those arts by which a big book is made. If a man is to wait till he weaves anecdotes into a system, we may be long in getting them and get but few in comparison of what we might get. Dr. Robertson said the notions of Euphem Macallan, a fanatic woman of whom Lord Hales gives a sketch, were still prevalent among some of the Presbyterians, and therefore it was right in Lord Hales, a man of known piety, to undeceive them. We walked out that Dr. Johnson might see some of the things which we have to show at Edinburgh. We went to the Parliament House, where the Parliament of Scotland sat, and where the ordinary Lords of Session hold their courts, and to the new Session House adjoining to it, where our Court of Fifteen, the fourteen ordinaries with the Lord President at their head, sit as a court of review. We went to the Advocates' Library, of which Dr. Johnson took a cursory view, and then to what is called the Lair, or Under, Parliament House, where the records of Scotland which has an universal security by register, are deposited till the great register office be finished. I was pleased to behold Dr. Samuel Johnson rolling about in this old magazine of antiquities. There was by this time a pretty numerous circle of us attending upon him. Somebody talked of happy moments for composition, and how a man can write at one time and not at another. Nay, said Dr. Johnson, a man may write at any time if he will set himself doggedly to it. I here began to indulge old Scottish sentiments and to express a warm regret that by our union with England we were no more, our independent kingdom was lost. Johnson, sir, never talk of your independency who could let your queen remain twenty years in captivity and then be put to death without even a pretence of justice, without your ever attempting to rescue her, and such a queen too, as every man of any gallantry of spirit will have sacrificed his life for. Worthy Mr. James Kerr, Keeper of the Records, half of our nation was bribed by English money. Johnson, sir, that is no defence, that makes you worse. Good Mr. Brown, Keeper of the Advocates' Library, 
We had better say nothing about it. Boswell. You would have been glad, however, to have had us last war, sir, to fight your battles. Johnson. We should have had you for the same price, though there had been no union, as we might have had Swiss or other troops. No, no, I shall agree to a separation. You have only to go home. Just as he had said this, I, to divert the subject, showed him the signed assurances of the three successive kings of the Hanover family to maintain the Presbyterian establishment in Scotland. We'll give you that, said he, into the bargain. We next went to the great church of St Giles, which has lost its original magnificence in the inside by being divided into four places of Presbyterian worship. Come, said Dr. Johnson, jocularly to Principal Robertson. Let me see what was once a church. We entered that division which was formerly called the New Church, and of late the High Church, so well known by the eloquence of Dr. Hugh Blair. It is now very elegantly fitted up, but it was then shamefully dirty. Dr. Johnson said nothing at the time, but when he came to the great door of the Royal Infirmary, where upon a board was this inscription, clean your feet he turned about slyly and said there is no occasion for putting this at the doors of your churches we then conducted him down the post-house stairs parliament close and made him look up from the cowgate to the highest building in edinburgh from which he had just ascended being thirteen floors or stories from the ground upon the back elevation the front wall being built upon the edge of the hill and the back wall rising from the bottom of the hill several stories before it comes to a level with the front wall. We proceeded to the college with the principal at our head. Dr. Adam Ferguson, whose essay on the history of civil society gives him a respectable place in the ranks of literature, was with us. As the college buildings are indeed very mean, the principal said to Dr. Johnson that he must give them the same epithet that a Jesuit did when showing a poor college abroad, high miseriae nostri. Dr. Johnson was, however, much pleased with the library, and with the conversation of Dr. James Robertson, Professor of Oriental Languages, the librarian. We talked of Kennicott's edition of the Hebrew Bible, and hoped it would be quite faithful. Johnson, Sir, I know not any crime so great that a man could contrive to commit as poisoning the sources of eternal truth. I pointed out to him where there formerly stood an old wall enclosing part of the college which I remember bulged out in a threatening manner, and of which there was a common tradition similar to that concerning Bacon's study at Oxford, that it would fall upon some very learned man. It had some time before this been taken down that the street might be widened and a more convenient wall built. Dr. Johnson, glad of an opportunity to have a pleasant hit at Scottish learning, said, They have been afraid it never would fall. We showed him the Royal Infirmary, for which, and for every other exertion of generous public spirit in his power, that noble-minded citizen of Edinburgh, George Drummond, will be ever held in honourable remembrance. And we were too proud not to carry him to the Abbey of Holyrood House, that beautiful piece of architecture, but alas, that deserted mansion of royalty, which Hamilton of Bangor in one of his elegant poems calls a virtuous palace where no monarch dwells. I was much entertained while Principal Robertson fluently harangued to Dr. Johnson upon the spot 
concerning scenes of his celebrated history of Scotland. We surveyed that part of the palace appropriated to the Duke of Hamilton as keeper, in which our beautiful Queen Mary lived, and in which David Rizzio was murdered, and also the state-rooms. Dr. Johnson was a great reciter of all sorts of things serious or comical. I overheard him repeating here, in a kind of muttering tone, a line of the old ballad, Johnny Armstrong's Last Good Night, and ran him through the fair body. We returned to my house, where there met him at dinner, the Duchess of Douglas, Sir Adolphus Orton, Lord Chief Baron Sir William Forbes, Principal Robertson, Mr. Cullen, Advocate. Before dinner he told us of a curious conversation between the famous George Faulkner and him. George said that England had drained Ireland of £50,000 in specie annually for fifty years. How so, sir, said Dr. Johnson. You must have a very great trade. No trade. Very rich mines. No mines. From whence then does all this money come? Come? Why, out of the blood and bowels of the poor people of Ireland. He seemed to me to have an unaccountable prejudice against Swift for I once took the liberty to ask him if Swift had personally offended him, and he told me he had not. He said to-day, Swift is clear, but he is shallow. In coarse humour he is inferior to Arbuthnot. In delicate humour he is inferior to Addison. So he is inferior to his contemporaries, without putting him against the whole world. I doubt if the tale of a tub was his. It has so much more thinking, more knowledge, more power, more colour than any of the works which are indisputably his. If it was his, I shall only say he was impar sibi. We gave him as good a dinner as we could. Our scotch moorfowl or grouse were then abundant and quite in season, and so far as wisdom and wit can be aided by administering agreeable sensations to the palate, my wife took care that our great guest should not be deficient. Sir Adolphus Orton, then our deputy commander-in-chief, who was not only an excellent officer, but one of the most universal scholars I ever knew, had learned the Erse language, and expressed his belief in the authenticity of Ossian's poetry. Dr. Johnson took the opposite side of that perplexed question, and I was afraid the dispute would have run high between them. But Sir Adolphus, who had a very sweet temper, changed the discourse, grew playful, laughed at Lord Monboddo's notion of men having tails, and called him a judge a posteriori, which amused Dr. Johnson, and thus hostilities were prevented. At supper we had Dr. Cullen, his son the advocate, Dr. Adam Ferguson, and Mr. Crosby advocate. Witchcraft was introduced. Mr. Crosby said he thought it the greatest blasphemy to suppose evil spirits counteracting the deity and raising storms, for instance, to destroy his creatures. Johnson. Why, sir, if moral evil be consistent with the government of the deity, why may not physical evil be also consistent with it? It is not more strange that there should be evil spirits than evil men evil unembodied spirits than evil embodied spirits and as to storms we know there are such things and it is no worse than evil spirits raise them than that they rise crosby but it is not credible that witches should have affected what they are said in stories to have done johnson sir i am not defending their credibility 
I'm only saying that your arguments are not good and will not overturn the belief of witchcraft. Dr. Ferguson said to me aside, he is right. And then, sir, you have all mankind, rude and civilised, agreeing in the belief of the agency of preternatural powers. You must take evidence. You must consider that wise and great men have condemned witches to die. Crosby, but an act of Parliament put an end to witchcraft. Johnson, no, sir, witchcraft had ceased, and therefore an act of Parliament was passed to prevent persecution for what was not witchcraft. Why it ceased we cannot tell, as we cannot tell the reason of many other things. Dr. Cullen, to keep up the gratification of mysterious disquisition with the grave address for which he is remarkable in his companionable as in his professional hours, talked in a very entertaining manner of people walking and conversing in their sleep. I am very sorry I have no note of this. We talked of the orang-utang, and of Lord Monboddo's thinking that he might be taught to speak. Dr. Johnson treated this with ridicule. Mr. Crosby said that Lord Monboddo believed the existence of everything possible. In short, that all which is in posse might be found in essay. Johnson. But, sir, it is as possible that the orang-utang does not speak as that he speaks. However, I shall not contest the point. I should have thought it not possible to find a Monboddo, yet he exists. I again mentioned the stage. Johnson. The appearance of a player with whom I have drunk tea counteracts the imagination that he is the character he represents. Nay, you know nobody imagines that he is the character he represents. They say, See, Garrick, how he looks tonight. See how he'll clutch the dagger. That is the buzz of the theatre. Tuesday, 17 August. Sir William Forbes came to breakfast and brought with him Dr. Blacklock, whom he introduced to Dr. Johnson, who received him with the most humane complacency. Dear Dr. Blacklock, I am glad to see you. Blacklock seemed to be much surprised when Dr. Johnson said it was easier to him to write poetry than to compose his dictionary. His mind was less on the stretch in doing the one than the other. Besides, composing a dictionary requires books and a desk. You can make a poem walking in the fields or lying in bed. Dr. Blacklock spoke of scepticism in morals and religion with apparent uneasiness, as if he wished for more certainty. Dr. Johnson, who had thought it all over, and whose vigorous understanding was fortified by much experience, thus encouraged the blind bard to apply to higher speculations what we all willingly submit to in common life. In short, he gave him more familiarly the able and fair reasoning of Butler's analogy. Why, sir, the greatest concern we have in this world, the choice of our profession, must be determined without demonstrative reasoning. Human life is not yet so well known as that we can have it. And take the case of a man who is ill. I call two physicians. They differ in opinion. I am not to lie down and die between them. I must do something. The conversation then turned on atheism, on that horrible book, Système de la Nature, and on the supposition of an eternal necessity without design, without a governing mind. Johnson. If it were so, why has it ceased? Why don't we see men thus produced around us now? 
Why, at least, does it not keep pace in some measure with the progress of time? If it stops because there is now no need of it, then it is plain there is and ever has been an all-powerful intelligence. But stay, said he with one of his satiric laughs, Ha, ha, ha! I shall suppose Scotchman made necessarily an Englishman by choice. At dinner this day we had Sir Alexander Dick, whose amiable character and ingenious and cultivated mind are so generally known. He was then on the verge of seventy, and is now, 1785, eighty-one, with his faculties entire, his heart warm, and his temper gay. Sir David Dalrymple, Lord Hales, Mr. McClorian, advocate, Dr. Gregory, who now worthily fills his father's medical chair, and my uncle, Dr. Boswell. This was one of Dr. Johnson's best days. He was quite in his element. All was literature and taste without any interruption. Lord Hales, who is one of the best philologists in Great Britain, who has written papers in the world and a variety of other works in prose and in verse, both Latin and English, pleased him highly. He told him he had discovered the life of Shainel in the student to be his. Johnson, no one else knows it. Dr. Johnson had before this dictated to me a law paper upon a question purely in the law of Scotland concerning vicious intromission, that is to say, intermeddling with the effects of a deceased person without a regular title, which formerly was understood to subject the intermeddler to payment of all the defunct debts. The principle has of late been relaxed. Dr. Johnson's argument was for a renewal of its strictness. The paper was printed, with additions by me, and given into the court of session. Lord Hales knew Dr. Johnson's part not to be mine, and pointed out exactly where it began and where it ended. Dr. Johnson said, It is much now that his lordship can distinguish so. In Dr. Johnson's Vanity of Human Wishes there is the following passage. The teeming mother, anxious for her race, begs for each birth the fortune of a face. Yet vain could tell what ills from beauty spring, and sedly cursed the charms which pleased a king. Lord Hales told him he was mistaken in the instances he had given of unfortunate fair ones, for neither Vane nor Sedley had a title to that description. His lordships have since been so obliging as to send me a note of this, for the communication of which I am sure my readers will thank me. The lines in the tenth satire of Juvenal, according to my alteration, should have run thus, Yet Shaw could tell, and Valier cursed. The first was a penitent by compulsion, the second by sentiment, though the truth is Mademoiselle de la Valliere threw herself, but still from sentiment, in the king's way. Our friend chose Vane, who was far from being well looked, and Sedley, who was so ugly that Charles the Second said his brother had her by way of penance. Mr. Maclaurin's learning and talents enabled him to do his part very well in Dr. Johnson's company. He produced two epitaphs upon his father, the celebrated mathematician. One was in English, of which Dr. Johnson did not change one word. In the other, which was in Latin, he made several alterations. Mr. Murray, advocate, who married a niece of Lord Mansfield's, and is now one of the judges of Scotland by the title of Lord Henderland, sat with us a part of the evening, but did not venture to say anything that I remember, though he is certainly possessed of talents 
which would have enabled him to have shown himself an advantage if too great anxiety had not prevented him. At supper we had Dr. Alexander Webster, who, though not learned, had such a knowledge of mankind, such a fund of information and entertainment, so clear a head and such accommodating manners, that Dr. Johnson found him a very agreeable companion. When Dr. Johnson and I were left by ourselves, I read to him my notes of the opinions of our judges upon the question of literary property. He did not like them and said, They made me think of your judges not with that respect which I should wish to do. To the argument of one of them that there can be no property in blasphemy or nonsense, he answered, Then your rotten sheep are mine. By that rule, when a man's house falls into decay, he must lose it. I mentioned an argument of mine that literary performances are not taxed. As Churchill says, no statesman yet has thought it worth his pains to tax our labours or excise our brains, and therefore they are not property. Yet, said he, we hang a man for stealing a horse, and horses are not taxed. Mr. Pitt has since put an end to that argument. End of section 2